Let's look to our Lord in prayer. And Father, we want to raise up people of influence this and coming generations that can take a good, hard look at the realities of life, examine carefully the needs that are around us, and then step in and make a difference. I pray that people in each of these services will view themselves as difference makers. When we're saved by grace through faith, you don't take us to heaven immediately. When we're saved by grace through faith, you leave us here for ministry purposefully. You call upon us to be people of influence, making a difference in this culture. Not only internally within the church and the family, but externally in the community and region and beyond for your glory. Lay upon each heart, Father, this morning, this need to make a difference. And thank you that you are the ultimate difference maker. Sending Jesus Christ to the cross to die in our place for our sins. So, Father, in these minutes together, what we're praying once again is that you would warm these hearts, that you would engage these minds, that you would shape these wills. Come here to see Jesus and him only. Praying these things again now in Jesus' name. Amen. It's the hand of God that we've been noticing again and again and again in Ezra and Nehemiah. And you see it even in this story that I clipped out of a medical journal years ago. Where late one evening, a professor sat at his desk working on the next day's lectures. Shuffled through the papers and mail placed there. He began to throw them in the wastebasket when... One magazine, not even addressed to him, but delivered to his office by mistake. Or was it? Caught his attention. What captures your attention? Fell open to an article that was entitled, The Needs of the Congo. The professor began reading it idly, the article tells us, but then he was consumed by these words. The need is great here. We have no one to work in the northern province of Gabon in the center of Congo. It's our hope that God will lay his hand on one one of whom already the master's eyes have been cast, that he or she be called to this place to help us. The professor closed the magazine and wrote in his diary, the search is over. And he gave himself to that setting. And the professor's name was... Albert Schweitzer. What I want to do with you is to continue what we have covered in previous weeks and examine very carefully how God strategically places his hand upon your life. 
even for such times as these. Sometimes unexpectedly. Sometimes you might even say to yourself, peers, accidentally. But God is doing this sovereignly. And he raises up people in various towns, in various schools, in school formats, in various neighborhoods and regions. And then with the sovereign hand, guides and directs events, guides and directs the stories of people's lives, the highs and the lows, weaving them all together in his craftsmanship to achieve something you nor I could achieve on our own. Now, Nehemiah has felt the grip, of you, the grip of that hand. And what I want to do now with you is to explore three areas of discernment that people so gripped by this hand need to exercise in order to make a difference in the settings that God has placed you in. Each and every setting we are in today is purposeful. Where you are today may not be where you are tomorrow. But God links today and tomorrow in such a way that he puts together a strategic plan for his glory and your good. Three areas of discernment. What is God doing with this hand anyways? Let's check it out. Nehemiah had been praying in what's now modern-day Iran. Nehemiah had been planning within the courts of the king of Persia, modern-day Iran. And now praying and planning are woven together, and he's trying to discern God's hand. And notice first of all with me in verses 9 through 16 that after, after prayerful planning, not before, after prayerful planning, discern God's hand at work as you evaluate the need the needs that God has placed you around in the neighborhoods, the needs God's placed you around in the work setting, the needs God's placed you around in the various towns represented in the cities here in this congregation. Now you've got to bear in mind that Nehemiah has he's got to travel a long distance to get to Jerusalem. He's tired, but God is not a respecter of geography. He will take a person and reposition that person according to his plan. So in verse 9, Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. And you say, well, Gary, why is that so significant? Well, you see, this was a two-month journey. And Nehemiah knows that he's got to be properly credentialed by the king of Persia in order to make a difference, to have influence in the setting of Jerusalem. And so he was prepared. He equipped himself in advance. What you and I have to do is to continuously prepare for tomorrow today. Not waste your todays while you are anxiously awaiting your tomorrows. You saw last week in the seventh verse of the second chapter that he had said to the king of Persia, If it pleases the king, let letters be given me to the governors of the province beyond the river, 
that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. He's done his homework. We saw it in verse 8. And a letter to Asaph, he even knows the man's name, the keeper of the king's forest. He's already drawing the interest level, the passion level of this king he's appealing to by saying this is not merely a forest in Judah, this is the king's forest. In other words, he wants, he wants the king engaged. Wise spiritual leadership looks for ways to incorporate engagement, getting people involved, using the todays to prepare for the tomorrows. This is what Nehemiah did. So then in verse 9, after adequately preparing himself, he's got his credentials. He's done his homework. I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Then he adds, now the king had sent with me officers of the army of the horsemen. They would have raised eyebrows. That the king of Persia has that much interest, you see, in this endeavor that he has so equipped Nehemiah that he would even send some of his own forces with Nehemiah. But, but you and I are told here, and there always seems to be a but in this world in which you and I live in, you've been adequately equipped. Maybe you've got the right education. Maybe you've got the right credentials. Things should go smoothly, right? Well, check out verse 10. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly. Literally, it was evil to them. Now, behind this, in the original language, it doesn't come out in the English, English but behind it, there is this clan clash here between good and evil. Because it says here, it was literally evil to them, that someone had come out to literally seek the good. Or in our English Standard Version, the welfare of the people of Israel. So the writer has strategically now said that in this epicenter, you and I know as Jerusalem, there is the spiritual clash unfolding, a spiritual clash between good and evil. Now, the wise spiritual leader, and if you are part and parcel of the next generation of spiritual leadership for this church, if you are a leader at work in the community, whatever, you've got to be able to prepare yourself adequately by determining in advance who are the stakeholders of opposition. Who has a vested interest in keeping Jerusalem in a state of ruins? God has a sovereign interest, you see, in having those walls constructed so that people will not be vulnerable, so that ultimately there will be a Messiah who will enter into Jerusalem to die in our place for our sins. Everything is connected in the Scriptures. There are no accidents in time. There are appointments with time. And so now, what Nehemiah has got to do is to determine in advance who are what we will call the stakeholders of the status quo. 
Who are the people that want Jerusalem, in this case, to remain in ruins? They're identified here. One's name is Sanballat. You see it in verse 10. So now you do a little homework. If you are Nehemiah, you want to know something about this man who is so opposed to the progression of God's work. And lo and behold, as you do your homework, you find out he's got vested interests, and furthermore, he's got insider information for his daughter has married into the family of the high priest in Jerusalem. He's the governor of Samaria. Now, we know from our Older Testament that when the Assyrians conquered the ten northern tribes, the Jews, they led out the strategic leaders of the Jews from those ten tribes and replaced them with foreigners who would then intermarry with Jews who remained. And thus we have Samaritans, which would shock the brilliant leader disciples when Jesus sat down with a woman at the well in the setting of Samaria as he was initiating a process to impact that region for the cause of Jesus Christ. Listen, spiritual leadership initiates. Jesus was making a connection in advance long before go into the world and make disciples of all nations. Long before Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts. No accidents. Sovereign appointments. Consider the people that God is around right now in your own personal life. But what about this one, Tobiah? You're a thinker. And you notice that the last three letters of his name, I-A-H, are the same last three letters in Nehemiah's name, I-A-H. There is some kind of ethnic linkage here. Who is this man? Tobiah is the governor of the Ammonites, Ammon. And you say to yourself, ah, the Ammonites, the Old Testament, they were the ones who were enemies of the Jews and were trying to thwart them as they made their way into the Promised Land. Now, if they were going to historically thwart the Israelites from entering the Promised Land, then that same sort, that same tendency, that same bent towards opposition is now in the present. And here we find a stakeholder trying to keep things from happening. What you and I see here now is that we've got a man on our hands who does his homework. He does not approach his tomorrows impulsively, He approaches his tomorrow's planning today strategically. If you have an impulsive streak about you, you've got to be able to discipline your tendencies in order to prepare for your tomorrow's today rather than just simply let your tomorrow's happen and then try to make your plans around them. Nehemiah doesn't do that, you see. And so Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite servant, heard this, and literally from the Hebrew now, and I want you to get this clash of good versus evil. Literally. It was evil to them, greatly, that someone had come to seek the good, literally, 
of the people of Israel. You see that now in verses 9 and 10. So you've identified stakeholders, people who have influence, and maybe, just maybe, people who would hinder the forward movement of the gospel in your setting, that would hinder even the gospel being presented to your children, that would hinder in some way, shape, or form God's plan and God's purpose. What do you do if you're a Nehemiah type? Notice verse 11. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Now what is he doing? He's formulating his plans. Not impulsive, but creative. There three days, and then I want you to notice verse 12 and consider how you utilize your nights. Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me. And I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. During his reign as a leader, Napoleon was reminded of a story of his younger years where women had critiqued him because he had been up during the night always studying and not out with friends. And he had responded, Had I used my time as you desired, I would not today be the commander of the army of France. Well, now, Nehemiah realizes that nighttime and daytime are God's time. Never underestimate the interruptions of the good night's sleep. Sometimes when you're awoken, what you've got to ask yourself is, what's the purpose? Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. Sometimes, not all the time, sometimes. Sleep is a luxury you can't afford. I arose in the night, I and a few men with me. Is this a cover-up? What comes next? Is this a conspiracy? Where it says, And I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. Not whatsoever. No, he is thinking wisely because at this point he does not know whether these stakeholders such as Sanballat and Tobiah have insiders within Jerusalem that are there to keep God from moving forward with his plan. You don't operate naively in this fallen world. He's got to be able to discern at this point Who can handle this information? And then the information will widen itself, but in due time. And I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. Jesus did this with his disciples, too. He had some insider information for the three that he would take his time in revealing to the twelve. And he had some information for the twelve that he had 
taken his time in revealing to outer circles and then outer circles because Jesus worked in concentric circles from the inside out, and so does Nehemiah. There is wisdom in understanding the concentric circles of spiritual leadership. So he then adds, and now you're getting a sense of the complexity of the ruins of Jerusalem. There was no animal with me, but the one on which I rode. You pick it up now. You pick it up on verse 13. And I went out again, notice the accent, by night. By the valley gate to the dragon spring, to the dung gate. What fascinates me now is that what comes next is a medical word. I inspected the walls. This is used to describe the evaluation of a patient indeed. What Nehemiah is now doing is to evaluate very carefully the need. If you are a parent, If you are working in a setting right now where there's unbelievers, if you are in strategic neighborhoods where God desires to do a great work and you are sensing the hand of the Lord upon you to make a difference, you've got to then do this kind of diagnosis, the evaluation of the need. Well, the walls of Jerusalem are broken down. Its gates destroyed by fire. How could this have lasted all this time? Some people be prone to say, well, I've just, I'm content. But the question is, are they content or are they complacent? Never confuse the two. And never allow a seeping complacency to make its way into your soul that keeps you from being able to no longer distinguish between contentment and complacency because Nehemiah's got conviction here. He's going to have to stir up the people. But he's first of all going to have to do an analysis. He's going to have to do an evaluation so he can speak firsthand of what the issues are, not secondhand via the lips of his brother who came to what's now modern-day Iran to tell him about the condition of Jerusalem. In verse 14, I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool. Notice then how difficult it was, the debris around the city. There was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. And so in 15, I went up in the night by the valley, and there's your same medical word again, and inspected the wall. I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned back and forth, evaluating, inspecting. Are you doing that? Look carefully at the needs of where God places you, no matter where you are positioned, geographically, occupationally, and so on. Relationally. Do you want to be a person of influence? Do you want to make a difference? Are you a 24-7 servant of the Lord? And what about those nighttime interruptions? What's happening here now is that Nehemiah is developing his sense of vision by first evaluating needs. He doesn't cast the vision until he evaluates the needs. 
There's a painter I've known of who painted with two canvases, one above the other. The upper one, always white. The artist imagined on that one the painting, the finished product. It was his vision, what was to be. And on the lower one, the canvas, he reproduced for others the picture that he already saw in his mind's eye. Now, vision carries with the idea of what you see. Nehemiah now is going to take eyesight and translate it into foresight. But he's going to have to start now with an evaluation of the process. And while others around him are spiritually complacent, though they might call it simply content, he is under conviction conviction to simply raise the the stakes of what's involved here because the epicenter of God's plan, Jerusalem, is in disrepair. Ask yourself, what is in need of repair? And how has God positioned you at this time to make a difference in that life or in that setting? And so in verse 16, you and I are told here, the officials did not know where I had gone. Is this a cover-up? No. He's got to simply evaluate at this point. How do I disseminate information in a strategic way, not prematurely, but rather timely? Know the difference. The officials did not know where I'd gone or what I was doing. They will. I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest. They will learn. But he's got a plan. And don't miss the next phrase. Who were to do the work. He's already got a plan for this entire community. Doing the work. Don't settle merely for eyesight. Project with foresight. Create a linkage in your family, in the work, in this church and beyond between the todays and the tomorrows that are ordained by God. There's your first area of discernment. After prayerful planning, discern God's hand at work as you evaluate the needs, 9 through 16. But now you get to verses 17 and 18. And after prayerful planning, discern God's hand at work, number two, as you communicate the vision. You don't communicate the vision first and then evaluate the needs. You evaluate the needs and then you communicate the vision. What's the vision here in this congregation? We've been drawing it out month after month over these years. The number one Through full-spectrum discipleship, we are in the business of multiplying committed followers of Jesus Christ. Not simple addition, but true multiplication. And with that full-spectrum discipleship, step two, second component, master plan committee, talking about the acquisition of the Quashis construction firm across the street so that the facility will facilitate the ministry. As you multiply disciples, you need places for disciples to be further discipled. 
so they in turn can disciple others in both the gathered state, like on Sundays, and the scattered state through the week. But stage three, component three in this visionary strategy, spiritual leadership, equipping the next generation of leadership, not settling for a one-generational plan, but connecting today to tomorrow. And thus the elders now are taking the study in Nehemiah, and we're developing now a means to raise up the next generations of leaders here using scriptural approaches towards the development of spiritual leaders. And so now here's a case study of a brilliant leader, Nehemiah. And notice he has, number one, evaluated the needs, and now number two, he communicates the vision. And we should do that in smaller as well as larger settings. Then he speaks up. Don't speak prematurely. You do your homework, then you speak up. Then I said to them, don't underestimate the word then. Then, after that evaluation, comes the communication. Then I said to them, I want you to mark some of the words that come out here. They leap out at you. You see? That's a vision word. You see the trouble? He's engaging them in something where they've been complacent about. You see the trouble? Now, notice he does not say you are in. Does he? You see the trouble we are in? What you want to do if you're going to influence others is to give them that sense of connectedness. I'm with you. The four-word question must have made both men smile when they thought about it. Question. Do you see anything? Quote, unquote. It was asked by an aide whose name has not made its way into the history books. But the one who was asked the question is known as Dr. Howard Carter, well-known British archaeologist, who simply at that time had his head poked into ancient Egyptian tombs. And for six uninterrupted years, Dr. Carter had been digging, digging, digging until one of the most historic finds in history would take place in 1922. You see, everyone else had dug into the Royal Valley. Said by the time they finished combing the area, there was nothing else to be discovered. Which made the question all the more interesting as Dr. Carter asked, do you see anything? as he stared in disbelief into this ancient tomb. Because there, with those around him, looked in, and lo and behold, he said, quote, we saw strange animals, gilded chariots, statues, chests, vases, daggers, 
jewels, a throne. This was the tomb and treasures of King Tutankhamun, simply known as King Tut, world's most exciting archaeological discovery up to that time. Incredible, astounding were words that others used. But it came in the form of a question. Do you see anything? Do you pose visionary questions? Parents have an opportunity to look carefully at the gift mix of their children. Look at the vulnerabilities of this society. Look at the ruins of the culture. Do you see anything as you're watching the news? What do you see as you analyze current events? And what you are doing at this point is equipping this person to become a person of influence. Connecting their gift mix that God has placed within them with the opportunities that God is presenting them. Some people are complacent with ruins. Believers have got to be able to see opportunities with ruins and what reconstruction can entail. You see the trouble we are in connecting now eyesight with foresight, utilizing insight. How Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let, and notice the key word again. This is leadership. Let us build the wall of Jerusalem. He must know the press releases out there and what the media and the internet's saying about Jerusalem. That we may no longer suffer derision. He's going to lift downhearted souls. Do you do that? Your tomb is empty, you know. He is risen. It leads you then to this third significant area of discernment that after prayerful planning, you discern God's hand at work. Note the sequence as you, number one, evaluate the needs, 9 through 16. As you number two, communicate the vision, verses 17 and 18. But now thirdly, as you anticipate the opposition. The evil one does not want the advancement of the gospel. In verse 19, when Sanballat the Horonite, he's the governor of Samaria, and Tobiah the Ammonite servant, you see, He's the governor of Ammon. And furthermore, Geshem the Arab. At this point, historically, Persia looked with great favor upon the Arabs. These people have vested interest historically, economically, relationally, spiritually, to keep Jerusalem in ruins. A good leader understands the background to the status quo. Brings spiritual vision forward. 
makes a difference. Parents raise up the next generation to make a difference. The single person invests the time God gives them to make a difference. But you're not naive in this fallen world. You anticipate the opposition when Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite servant, Geshem the Arab heard of it. They jeered at us, despised us, utilizing their form of a question. What is this thing you are doing? And here's the irony. Are you rebelling against the king? But you read chapter 1, didn't you? And you read the last verse of chapter 1, didn't you? When Nehemiah said, No, I was cupbearer to the king. He was in the interest of the king as the wine giver to make absolutely certain that nobody would be an anarchist putting up some strategy to overtake and overcome the king. And so here they're asking the one who is the defender of the king if he's rebelling against the king as he's got letters for the governors and as he's got the royal god sent by the king into this region. He's done his homework, as should you, as should I in this fallen world. Spiritual leadership anticipates. And so he's got a ready response. This is his testimony. And then I replied to them, and you can imagine now the Jews listening in as he speaks to the opponents, the God of heaven will make us prosper. doesn't say we will. And we, his servants, speaking of their relationship to God, will arise and build and relying upon the promised strategy of God delivered to Abram and Isaac and Jacob and so on regarding Jerusalem in particular and Israel in general pertaining to that ultimate strategy of Messiah coming to this world into Jerusalem as King of Kings and Lord of Lords, dying on a cross three days later, being raised from the dead, he will then say to them, but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. And here in 2016, I want you, when you're analyzing global events and the tensions surrounding Israel today, and in particular, Jerusalem, how this fits in. And the hand of God is still involved. If you have been involved in finance at all, studied economics at all, business at all, you might remember the name Adam Smith, who wrote The Wealth of the Nations. And in his economic volume, spoke of the invisible hand of providence guiding and directing the economies of this world. But you see, the news does not pick up on the invisible hand. But what the believer has got to be able to say in unmistakable terms is that though the hand is invisible, the hand is involved. He's involved in your home. He's involved in this nation. 
He's involved in this world, guiding and directing events for his purpose and for his glory. Discern the hand of the Lord. Let's stand together. So, Father, we want to be raising up the next generation of spiritual leaders. This is a tremendous opportunity for them to be evaluating the needs internally in the congregation, externally in the culture. It's an opportunity, likewise, when it's appropriate to communicate the vision which we have been doing. But always and always in a fallen world, anticipating the opposition where the evil one in the conflict of good versus evil does not want the cause of Christ to advance. Take the people that are here, all these services, and fill them now with a sense of the need to be people of impact, setting aside complacency, a sense of conviction to make a difference in the settings we're in, and all for the glory of our Lord. And we'll give you all the praise. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.